Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 85 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the disappearance of the boys from Yuba City. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. On February 24th, 1978, 42 years ago this coming Monday, five young men in Northern California drove to see a basketball game in a nearby town. They were all excited to see the game, and they were excited because the next day they were going to compete in a basketball game in the Special Olympics. But they never returned from their trip, and what happened to them remains a mystery. Four of them died, and one of them simply vanished. But it seems that some of them lived for months after their disappearance. A local police official described the case as, quote, bizarre as hell, end quote. So what happened to them? And how did they survive for so long before eventually dying? And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, this mystery is sometimes called America's Dyatlov Pass. Why is that? The Dyatlov Pass incident occurred in Russia back in February of 1959, and a group of nine young people were on a hiking expedition in the snowy Ural Mountains. But they died at night under mysterious circumstances, and today no one can explain exactly why because of the weird aspects of the case. If you want to hear about that, we talked about Dyatlov Pass back in episode 24 of Mysterious World, and it's one of our most popular episodes. This incident that we're talking about today happened in February of 1978, just 19 years after Dyatlov Pass. And there are some similarities. In this case, it was another group of young people, in this case, five young men. They also vanished at night up in the mountains amid huge snow drifts, which were apparently four to six feet tall. Some of the reports say the snow drifts were as high as 15 feet on top of tall manzanita bushes. And there are really weird aspects of the case that are hard to explain. I should say it isn't as weird as Dyatlov Pass, but it's still really weird. So what can you tell us about the young men in this case as a group? They were all from Yuba County, California, which is a county in Northern California. It's about two and a half hours northeast of San Francisco by car. The men who were referred to by their families just as the boys, even though they were all grown men, all lived in either Yuba City or in Marysville, which is the county seat of Yuba County. Since they're all from the same county, they're sometimes called the Yuba County Five. They were all friends. They were all roughly the same age, being between 24 and 32 years old. And those weren't the only things they had in common, though. They were also all quirky. What do you mean by quirky? They all had mental aberrations, not necessarily huge ones, but notable ones. Basically, they either had psychiatric or developmental disorders, low IQ, things like that. They were considered slow, most of them. The best way to get a sense of them as a group is to talk about them as individuals first, though. Let's meet the Yuba County Five. Who was the oldest? 
That would be Ted Weyer, who was 32, and he had low IQ. Here's a description of him from Jesse Dixon's book, The Disappearance of the Yuba County Five. Theodore Weyer, Ted, had curly brown hair and warm brown eyes. He was handsome, despite a bit of a beer belly, and he had a childlike friendliness that made him brood for hours if the strangers he waved at refused to wave back. He loved to call up his friend Bill Sterling to read funny bits out of the newspaper or silly names he found in the phone book. He'd worked as a janitor for a while and then as a clerk at a snack bar, but his family had convinced him to give up on holding down a job. They believed his slowness was too troublesome for his employers and his customers. And here's how he was described in a 2019 article in the Sacramento Bee. Ted loved making new friends but lacked basic common sense, his brother Dallas said in an interview with the Bee. He once spent $100 on pencils for no particular reason, his parents told investigators, and would question instructions as simple as stopping at a stop sign. When his parents' house in the town of Linda caught fire, he stayed in bed watching the ceiling over him burn and told his brother to leave him alone because he needed a rest for work the next day, they told investigators. One of his brothers dragged him from the burning home. He'd wake me up in the middle of the night and say, how come Mickey Mantle can hit the ball farther than me, Dallas Weyer said. Despite being the oldest, Ted had a close friendship with the youngest member of the group, who we'll meet in a few moments. Ted lived with his grandmother, and he had been deer hunting at least once, but he didn't like the woods very much. He owned a nickel ring, meaning a ring made out of the metal nickel, and he had his name engraved on it, and he wore a necklace, which some sources say was a gold necklace, but others say was made of beads, and that'll come up briefly later on in the story. So who is the next oldest of the boys? His name was Jack Madruga, and he was 30 years old. Here's how Jesse Dixon describes him. Army veteran Jack Madruga was a high school graduate who stood at 5'11 and 190 pounds. He was a bit heavyset with brown eyes and brown hair and had been recently laid off from a position he'd kept as a busboy for Sunsweet Growers. So Sunsweet Growers is an agricultural co-op that's based in Yuba City. They're known for making dried fruits, and they do a bunch of them, but they're particularly known for their prunes. And if you live in America, you've probably seen Sunsweet Fruits in the supermarket. Jack had a close friendship with the middle member of the group, Bill Sterling, who we'll also meet in a minute. Jack owned a 1967 turquoise and white Mercury Montego, which is a kind of sedan car, and he was very proud of it in particular about it. He was the only person he ever let drive the car. Nobody else got to drive it. And uh, Jack was one of two Army veterans that were in the group. So he'd been in the Army and had been successful in the Army. And what can you tell us about Jack's friend, Bill Sterling? He was 29, and here's how Jesse Dixon describes him. William, or Bill, Sterling had dark hair and blue eyes and weighed 170 pounds on a 5'10 frame. He was very religious, and when he wasn't spending time with his best friend, Madruga, he could be found in the library reading up on how he could help patients in mental hospitals find Jesus and be saved. According to the Sacramento Bee, Bill worked at Beale Air Force Base as a dishwasher in the early 70s, but his mother made him quit after discovering airmen routinely got him drunk to steal his money, she told investigators. According to his family, he didn't like camping or being out in the cold. A few years earlier, his father had taken him on a fishing trip, but he didn't like it and didn't go on later trips that his father took the family on. You mentioned that in addition to Jack, there was another Army veteran in the group. Who was he? Gary Mathias. He was 25, and here's how Jesse Dixon describes him. 
An assistant in the gardening business owned by his stepfather, Gary Mathias stood five foot ten and weighed around 170 pounds. He had brown hair and hazel eyes and had also served in the Army. But he'd received a psychiatric discharge as a result of drug problems he developed while in Germany approximately five years earlier. Unlike the others, Gary did not have a low IQ, but he had psychiatric problems and had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Uh, schizophrenia is a psychiatric illness that is characterized by things like hearing voices, having delusions and hallucinations, and disordered thinking. It is not the same thing as split personality or dissociative identity disorder, though the two are often confused. Schizophrenia often begins in early adulthood, as it did for Gary. He was starting to experience symptoms when he was in the Army, and it may remain for life, but it is treatable by medication, and Gary had been taking medication for it for three years. He'd been prescribed stelazine and cogentin, drugs typically used to treat symptoms of schizophrenia. According to his family, he'd started showing signs of the illness around five years earlier while stationed in Germany with the Army. He'd exhibited some violence on occasion, according to police records. He'd been charged with assault in two separate incidences, and shortly after returning from Germany, Matthias had had difficulty adjusting. He would often skip doses of his medication, which put him in a state of disoriented psychosis that typically ended with his admission to a Veterans Administration hospital. He simply, quote, went haywire. But both Matthias's family and his doctor said he hadn't gone haywire over the last two years. He'd been working a steady job for his stepfather, and he was taking his medication regularly. In fact, in a 1978 newspaper story, one of his physicians described him as, quote, one of our sterling success stories, close quote. So things were going well for him. Also, uh, besides Jack Madruga, Gary was the only other member of the group who had a driver's license. And before joining the Army, he'd been a singer in a local band and had played high school football. That leaves us with the youngest member of the group. Who is that? Jack Hewitt. He was 24, and here's how Jesse Dixon describes him. The youngest man in the group, Jackie Hewitt, was a little slow to respond, but he followed Ted Wire, the oldest member of the group, around like a shadow. In return, Wire was protective of his young protege, even dialing Hewitt's phone for him whenever he needed to place a call. Hewitt was 24, five foot nine, and about 160 pounds, recognizable due to the way his head drooped slightly. According to the Sacramento Bee, Jackie Hewitt was the most severely handicapped of the five, his father told investigators. He couldn't read, write, or dial a telephone, and depended highly on his mother and wire, whom he had known for about eight years. Shy with a speech impediment, he didn't particularly like being away from home for extended periods of time. Certainly not overnight, his father said. Jack also may have had an IQ in the 40s. It could be a little hard to remember everything about the five. Can you can you give a quick summary of them? Yeah, from oldest to youngest, the boys are Ted, Jack Madruga, there's two Jacks, Bill, Gary, and Jack Hewitt. Ted was friendly, but didn't have the common sense needed to get out of bed when the house was on fire. Jack Madruga owned the Mercury Montego that he was very proud of and didn't let anybody else drive. Bill was the very religious guy who wanted to help mental patients find Jesus and be saved. Gary was the guy who had been discharged from the army for drug use and who then developed schizophrenia. And Jack Hewitt was the youngest, the most mentally challenged, and the one who didn't like using phones. All right, those are the boys as individuals. How do they relate to each other as a group? 
Really well. Here's what Yuba County Under Sheriff Jack Beecham said about the four with low IQ and how they related to each other. They were almost inseparable. They would pal around together, go together. They were described as kind of the studs of their community, you know, the special needs folks, Beecham said. They were athletic, very well liked, very well respected. Law enforcement had no issues with them. They were nice kids, nice people, end quote. All five also were involved with Gateway Projects, a Yuba City organization for special needs adults. They played basketball for the Gateway Gators, a team sponsored by Gateway Projects. And in fact, they had a big game coming up. On the day after they disappeared, they were scheduled to compete in the Special Olympics. At the basketball game, they could have a chance to meet Sally Struthers, the actress who played Gloria, the daughter on the then popular TV program All in the Family. Also, according to Jesse Dixon, It was incredibly unusual for the boys to be gone. They were supposed to play basketball themselves the very next day in a tournament that awarded a free week-long trip to Los Angeles to the winners. They'd prepared for the game before leaving the night before, cleaning and laying out their matching beige Gateway Gators t-shirts, representative of the Yuba City Vocational Rehabilitation Center they played for. Ted's mother had washed her son's new white high tops for the big game, which he'd scuffed up a bit while trying them out. And Gary's mother said he'd almost driven her crazy with his excitement over the upcoming competition. We got a big game Saturday, she remembers him saying. Don't you let me oversleep. So they were jazzed as they could be about the basketball game they were going to be playing in, and they definitely were planning on coming back. There was no way they were going to miss their Special Olympics game. So what happened to them? In addition to playing basketball themselves, they also were fans of the UC Davis team. Davis is about an hour south of Yuba City, and so it would be natural for them to be fans of the University of California Davis basketball team. On Friday, February 24th, the Davis team was going to be playing against Chico State in the city of Chico, which is about an hour north of Yuba City. So the boys made preparations for their own game on Saturday and then drove up to Chico in Dra Jack Madruga's Mercury. Even though it was a home game for Chico, they lost. So the boys got to see their favorite team, UC Davis, win the game. So that was nice. After the game, the boys bought snacks for the hour-long trip back to Yuba City, and according to the Sacramento Bee, The boys strolled into Bear's Market, a convenience store in Chico, just before 10 p.m., to load up on snacks for the ride home, mildly bothering a clerk who had been trying to close. And according to Jesse Dixon, With their hands full of candy bars, soda, and hostess pies, they climbed back into Madruga's Mercury and headed back on the road. That was the last time anybody is known for a fact. To have seen them. So what happened next? When they failed to return, their parents freaked out. The boys should have been back by 11 p.m. or midnight, but they didn't show. Their parents started calling each other in the early morning hours, and then they notified the police in the morning. A search began immediately on Saturday, February 25th. The police started searching the road between Chico and Yuba City, but they didn't find the boys' car anywhere. And now we need to flash sideways and a little back in time because somebody maybe saw the boys after they left the convenience store and that person did see their car. So who was that? His name was Joe Shones and he was 55 years old. He owned a cabin up in the mountains in the Plumas National Forest, which is farther northeast than Chico. So it's in the wrong direction from Yuba City. 
he owned a cabin up there in the forest, which was covered in snow at this time of year. And on Friday, February 24th, the same day the boys disappeared, he started to drive up to the cabin to check on weather conditions there because he wanted to take his family up to the cabin for a weekend getaway. Then, according to Jesse Dixon, As Shones forced his little Volkswagen further and further down the snowy trail, the car started fighting back, and when it finally gave in to the mounting snowdrifts, Shones got out of the car and set to work pushing it. That's when the pain started, deep in his chest, then radiating outward. Miles and miles from any help, Shones was suffering a heart attack. Unable to rescue his car from its snowy encasement, Shones climbed back into the driver's seat and started thinking through his possible next steps. It was then that he noticed headlights coming toward him. Two sets, even. The first set of lights he could tell were from a pickup truck. Shones quickly jumped out of the car and headed toward the oncoming vehicle, screaming for help and waving his arms. But no one paid him any attention. Later, he said he watched as a group of men, a single woman, and a little baby walked right by. It must have been hours later, he remembered, when he thought he saw flashlights in the trees. He tried calling out again, but again got no response. By the time his car ran out of gas, the excruciating pain in Shone's chest had receded enough that he felt he could handle the eight-mile walk down the snowy road to a lodge he knew would be occupied. On the way, he recalled, he spotted a Mercury Montego on the side of the road, completely empty. He assumed the vehicle belonged to the people he'd seen passing by hours before. So Shone saw two sets of headlights, one of which was from a pickup and one of which he believed belonged to the Mercury Montego. It would later turn out this was Jack Madrigo's car, so the boys had been in it. And the boys themselves may have been in the group of people that Shone saw walk past his car. Shone said that the group contained six or seven people, including the woman with the baby. It may have included the five boys, the woman, and possibly another man. According to Shones, when he called out for help, the people stopped talking and turned out their headlights. Later, when he saw flashlights in the woods and called out for help, the flashlights were turned off too. This going silent and turning off lights when Shones called for help is the first sign that something weird may have been happening with the boys. In the morning, when Shones passed the boy's car, he assumed that they'd gotten stuck too and had walked down the mountain just as he was doing. He therefore put it out of his mind and didn't report it to the authorities. You know, he was, after all, focused on getting treatment for his heart attack. Uh, how did the authorities end up finding the car? Well, later that same day, on Saturday the 25th, a Plumas National Forest Ranger also saw the car. He thought that it had been left there by someone who had come up to do cross-country skiing on the weekend, but when he heard reports of the missing boys, he let the police know about the car. He was able to take them to it on Tuesday, February 28th. Inside, they found cartons, cans, and wrappers from the snacks the boys had gotten for their trip back to Yuba City. They also found programs from the basketball game and a roadmap of California. But there were unusual things about the car. According to Wikipedia, The first was its location, 70 miles from Chico, far off any direct route to Yuba City or Marysville. None of the men's families could speculate as to why they might have driven up a long and winding dirt road on a winter's night deep into a high-elevation remote forest without any extra clothing, and on the night before a basketball game, they'd been talking excitedly about among themselves for several weeks. Similarly, police could not figure out why the men had abandoned the car. They had reached 4,400 feet in elevation along the road, about where the snow line was at that time of year, just short of where the road was closed for the winter. 
The car had become stuck in some snowdrifts, and there was evidence that the wheels had been spun attempting to get out of it. But police noted the snow was not so deep that five healthy young men would not have been able to push it out. The keys were not present, suggesting at first that the car had been abandoned because it might not have been functioning properly, with the intention of returning later with help. But when police hotwired the car, it started immediately, and the gas tank was a quarter full. The questions continued after police towed the car back to the station for a more thorough examination. The Montego's undercarriage had no dents, gouges, or even mud scrapes, not even on its low-hanging muffler, despite having been driven a long distance up a mountain road with many bumps and ruts. Either the driver had been very careful, or it was someone familiar with the road, a familiarity that Jack Madruga was not known to have. Nor, his family said, would Madruga have let someone else drive it. But the car was also unlocked and had a window rolled down when it was found, and they also said it was unlike him to leave the car so unsecured. So, quite a few unexplained things about the car, including why it was up in the mountains in the first place and why the boys abandoned it. What happened next with the investigation? A severe snowstorm hit, and the authorities had to suspend the search for the boys, at least near the car. As word of the disappearance got out in the press, leads started coming in to the police. Most of these were dead ends, claiming that the boys had been seen elsewhere in the state or even in other parts of the country. But one of the good leads came from Joe Shones, the man who had the heart attack. Another promising lead came from a woman who worked in a store in Brownsville, about 30 miles from where the car had been abandoned. According to Wikipedia, On March 3rd, the woman who saw flyers that had been distributed with the men's picture and information about the $1,215 or $4,700 in modern dollars reward the families had put up, told deputies that four of them had stopped at the store in a red pickup truck two days after the disappearance, that is, on Sunday, February 26th. The store owner corroborated her account. The woman said she identified the men immediately as from out of the area due to their, quote, big eyes and facial expressions. Two of the men, whom she identified as Jack Hewitt and Bill Sterling, were in the phone booth outside while the other two went inside. Police said she was a credible witness and they took her account seriously. Additional detail came from the store owner. He told investigators that men whom he believed to be Ted Ware and Jack Hewitt came in and bought burritos, chocolate milk, and soft drinks. Ted's brother told the Los Angeles Times that while driving to Brownsville in a different car, in apparent ignorance of the Special Olympics basketball game, seemed completely out of character for them. The owner's description of the two men's behavior seemed consistent with them, as Ted would, quote, eat anything he could get his hands on, end quote, and was often accompanied by Jack Hewitt more than any of the other four. However, Hewitt's brother said Jack hated using telephones to the point that he would handle calls for his brother Jack from the other men in the group. So we have some pieces of evidence that are consistent with what others said. Joe Shones said that he saw, he thought he saw two cars, one of which was a pickup, and that could be the pickup that the woman in Brownsville saw. The store owner reported seeing Ted, the oldest, and Jack, the youngest, buying food together, and it's known that they had a strong friendship. Also, the Brownsville woman thought that she saw Jack Hewitt and Bill using a payphone. That's odd because Jack didn't like using phones, but other people would help him with them. So maybe that's why Bill was in the phone booth with him. And note, this is two days after the disappearance. Were the authorities able to find out much as a result of these leads? No, and after this, the trail became cold. The police became increasingly desperate, according to the Sacramento Bee. Investigators spent more than three months sifting through snow, 
chasing dozens of false leads. They consulted a psychic who told them she saw bodies in green canvas bags, the same color bags later used to retrieve the boys' bodies. A body witcher was brought in, and his magic rod pointed them to an empty cabin but no clues. Local, state, and federal law enforcement agents spent more than 6,000 combined hours looking for the young men. Dogs, horses, helicopters, and snowcats, that is, big snow vehicles, all turned up nothing but dead ends. Roads became more accessible as winter turned to spring, and 15-foot snowdrifts over thick manzanita bushes thawed. But the missing five's chances of survival dwindled with each day. Then Sheriff Jim Grant told the Associated Press at the time, I was up there one day, and the only way I could get out was with a compass. But eventually, the police got a lead that paid off. Who gave them the lead? It was a group of motorcyclists. On Sunday, June 4th, they were riding up in the mountains, and much of the snow had melted by this time. They came upon a trailer at a Forest Service campsite. So this is a Forest Service trailer. It was off the road and about 20 miles from where the car had been abandoned. It had a broken window, and when they opened the door, they were the motorcyclists were met with a horrible smell and saw what looked like a body on the bed wrapped up in sheets. They immediately notified the authorities who came and searched the trailer and the surrounding area. And what did the authorities find? According to Jesse Dixon, the body was draped head to toe in sheets and tucked into a bed. Authorities peeled back the eight layers of sheets and found that the body was Ted Ware, who was missing his shoes and had severely frostbitten feet. Next to the bed, on a small table, he'd left his wallet, which still had cash tucked inside. A nickel ring engraved with his name, a gold necklace, and strangely, a gold Waltham watch, which was missing a crystal. None of the families could identify the watch as belonging to any of the five men. So they now found the body of Ted, the oldest of the group, and he had been bizarrely wrapped in eight sheets and tucked into bed. Uh, and things get even stranger because he'd survived for a really long time. Ted's body had been completely emaciated. Once a tall, heavyset man of 5'11 and 200 pounds, he'd lost nearly 100 pounds by the time his body was found even though he'd been found inside a trailer which was well-stocked with canned and dried food. There was a can opener in plain sight, and some cans of food appeared to have been opened. But based on Ware's beard growth, authorities guessed that he'd been living in the trailer for as long as 8 to 13 weeks. He hadn't even turned on the full propane tank, which would have provided sufficient energy to heat the trailer for a significant time. Not only that, but he hadn't touched the paperback books that had been collected inside the structure, full of pages that would have made the perfect fuel for a warm fire when lit with the matches that were lying around. The window, which had been smashed to allow the boys' entry into the trailer, remained uncovered. All they had to do was turn that gas on, said Ayers, and they'd have had gas to the trailer and heat. So, based on his beard, Ted had survived for 8 to 13 weeks after the boys disappeared on February 24th. That means he would have died sometime between April 21st and May 26th, just nine days before his body was found. Also, it's not just his beard length that suggests this. People normally lose only half a pound of fat per day on a total fast. And even if you raised that to a full pound a day because of the wintry conditions and the lack of heating, 
Ted would have taken three full months, 12 to 13 weeks, to lose 90 pounds. And so he likely was alive just nine days, approximately, before they found his body. And then somebody was in the trailer with him because he was wrapped in the eight layers of sheets after he died. So someone else was alive, too. And inexplicably, Ted had been starving. He'd lost nearly half of his body weight, despite the fact there was plenty of food in the trailer. In fact, the trailer was stocked with enough military sea rations to keep all five of the men alive for a year. And two of the men, Jack Madruga and Gary Mathias, were Army veterans who knew how to use sea rations. According to the Sacramento Bee, 31 cans of food from an outside storage locker had been opened and emptied, according to case files, with no conclusive fingerprints. Another locker that would have had enough meals to last all five men an entire year was unopened. A propane tank outside the trailer could have provided gas and heat, but was also untouched. Evidence showed a candle had been recently lit. Burnable wood and paper were found throughout the trailer, but no evidence indicated a fire had been started, despite Ted Ware's cause of death being ruled as exposure-slash-pulmonary edema, also called wet lung. The food had been pried open with an Army P-38 can opener, a small sickle-shaped device that only Gary Mathias and Jack Madruga would have had experience using. It also looked like Gary Mathias's shoes had been swapped with Ted's. Matthias's sneakers were inside the trailer, and Wire's sturdier leather shoes were gone, leading investigators to believe Matthias had been inside the trailer long enough to swap footwear. So maybe it was Gary Matthias who had been inside the trailer and wrapped Ted up after he died sometime in April or May, probably May. Or maybe Gary had been there early on, and since Ted had frostbite, he swapped shoes with Ted to go search for help long before Ted died. Did the authorities find anyone else's remains? Yeah, they did. Now that the snows had started to melt and they had a better idea of where to search, they quickly found the remains of three of the boys. The remains were all found outside, and I'm not going to go into details because they're kind of gruesome. In the ravages of the mountain winter, animals had done what they needed to with the bodies to survive. So I'm going to keep this top level and clinical. On Tuesday, June 6th, they found the remains of Bill Sterling and Jack Madruga about eight miles away from the trailer on the way back to where the car had been abandoned. Jack still had his car keys with him, and the cause of death was ruled to be hypothermia or exposure. There wasn't enough of Bill's body left to tell why he died. The remains were close together, and police speculated that one of the men had been overcome by hypothermia, one of the symptoms of which is a desire to go to sleep and the other wouldn't leave his side. On Thursday, and we know also they were, they were friends. They were, this was one of the friendships within the group. On Thursday, June 8th, they found the remains of Jack Hewitt, the youngest of the group. They were found near the trailer, and they were found in a really tragic manner. Despite the authorities urging him not to participate in the search, Jack's father, Jack Hewitt Sr., insisted on coming, and it was he who found the first part of his son's remains, which is enough to tear your heart out. So what about Gary Mathias, who had Ted's shoes, they think? Did they ever find his remains? No, he simply vanished. His remains might be lost in the woods, or, hypothetically, he may have survived and still be alive today, in which case he would be 67 years old. 
Okay. So we're that that's uh, our factual background. Uh, we're going to get into theories next, but I do want to take a moment to pause and thank our patrons who make this show possible, including this time Samuel C, Ian S, Nick W, Jimmy C, and Ernie M. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest, which is a nonprofit organization, so we do need your help. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about the disappearance of the Yuba County Five? Well, there's a bunch of unanswered questions to look at. These include, why did the boys drive up into the mountains after the basketball game, which is not in the direction of home? Why did they abandon their car? When precisely did four of them die? What happened in the trailer with Ted? What happened to Gary Mathias? And did anyone cause this to happen, or was it just a tragic series of accidents? So what can we say about what happened from the reason perspective? Do we have any idea why the boys drove up into the mountains after the basketball game? The explanation that's the easiest to reach for first is just that they took a wrong turn and got progressively more lost in the dark, especially once they got into the mountains. But that's a problematic explanation because Jack Madruga was not that mentally handicapped. He had served successfully in the Army, and unlike Gary Mathias, he wasn't given a psychiatric discharge. He was also competent enough to have a driver's license and own a car. He had a map of California in the car, and he'd just driven the route north from Yuba City to Chico, which is a simple drive. All he had to do was reverse the route, and they'd just take it and go south. Instead, he went east and kept going east, despite the fact he was entering unfamiliar territory. I mean, he should have turned around and gone back to Chico as soon as they realized they were lost. And Gary Mathias was in the car and he didn't have a low IQ. He should have told them to turn around. That suggests that there may be another reason why they went east into the mountains. And I can think of three possibilities. First, it could have been a spur-of-the-moment suggestion by somebody in the car. If so, the likely person would be Gary Mathias. Uh, he had by far the most forceful personality of the five, and he could have used that force of personality to get the others to go along, either willingly because he convinced them this was a good idea, or unwillingly because they didn't really want to go, but they didn't want to challenge him either. Second, they could have encountered somebody else, maybe a hitchhiker or a motorist in trouble, who got them off course. If so, that might have been the woman with the baby or the man with the pickup, if there was a man, that Joe Shones reported seeing when he saw the two cars, one of which was Jack Madruga's and the other of which was a pickup. The difficulty with this theory, or one difficulty that's been proposed, is that Shones was having a heart attack at the time, and he said he might have hallucinated some of the things he remembered. But I've got a problem with that because I checked... And visual hallucinations don't seem to be a symptom associated with heart attacks, especially not mild ones like the one Shones had. I mean, he survived for hours without medical attention after that. On the other hand, even if he wasn't hallucinating, the people he saw may have had nothing to do with the boys. They may have been other people completely. The third possibility is somebody could have been chasing the boys, and this is a theory that was proposed by some of the family. According to Jesse Dixon... According to a theory proposed by Ted Wire's sister-in-law, it's possible the men had observed some kind of activity at the basketball game that someone didn't want anyone to know, 
something, she thought, that might have led someone to chase them when they left the game. While the authorities were never able to find sufficient evidence to prove that any kind of pursuit had taken place, it was difficult for anyone who knew the boys to shake the theory. The men had seemed determined to drive east with seemingly no reason to do so. Why would they do it if it wasn't because there was something scarier coming after them? So maybe the boys had seen some kind of crime taking place, either at or after the basketball game, and someone gave them chase, like maybe people in the pickup truck. Or maybe they honked off another motorist who chased them, although it's hard to imagine an angry motorist chasing you for that long up into the snowy mountains. Uh, what about why they abandoned the car? The simplest theory is that they got stuck in the snow and couldn't get the car out again. The police found evidence that they'd spun the tires in the snow trying to get out. The problem is they easily could have pushed the car out of the snow. You might say that they didn't do that just because they didn't have the common sense to push it out. But that wouldn't apply to Gary Mathias, whose problem was not low IQ. He would have had the sense to push out the car and the force of personality needed to get the others to do it. That would suggest that they may have been led to abandon the car by somebody. Gary Mathias had the force of personality to make them do that. Criminals they'd seen also might get them to do that. Or the people in the pickup could have tricked them by saying, hey, we'll give you a ride, and then dumped them off in the middle of nowhere. What about the circumstances in which the four who died met their ends? The simplest explanation is that once they decided to abandon the car, they started walking, looking for a place to find shelter or help. Around 12, mi 12 miles into the trek, either Jack Madruga or Bill Starling was overcome by hypothermia, and the other wouldn't leave him, so they both died in the early morning hours of Saturday, February 25th. Then, buddies Ted Weyer and Jack Hewitt, along with Gary Mathias, made it the full 20 miles to the trailer, being guided there by a recently plowed path through the snow that a snowcat had made the previous day on Thursday, February 23rd. But there are unanswered questions about this. I mean, first, the road to get to the trailer meant going further up into the snow-covered mountains. Why didn't they just walk back down the hill the way Joe Shones did? The fact they kept going could suggest they were being led or forced to go further. Also, what about the Brownsville store owner and the clerk that said they saw all four of the men with low IQ two days later on Sunday, February 26th? Was that a genuine sighting? The two people involved both ID'd the men from photos and their observed behavior was consistent with known behavior patterns, but they came in a red pickup not their own car, and with nobody else. So did the people that Joe Schoen saw let them use the pickup or make them use the pickup? And why wasn't Gary Mathias with them? Was he back at the trailer? Also, why would the four come without him? I mean, could Gary have sent the four down to the store? And why did two of them make a phone call that wasn't to any of their relatives? Was someone forcing them to make this call? perhaps to someone the criminals that they had seen wanted them to contact? And why did they go back to the trailer afterwards? If Jack Madruga had enough sense to own a car and have a driver's license, he had enough sense to get away if given the opportunity. So maybe there was a reason they had to go back, like maybe someone was holding their friend Gary hostage at the trailer. If so, then they may have returned and started the hike to the trailer only for Bill and 
Jack Madruga to get overcome by hypothermia on the way. Or maybe the Brownsville people were just wrong and they mistook another group for the four boys. What may have happened in the trailer with Ted? At least three of the boys probably made it to the trailer. Ted definitely made it because his body was there. Jack Hewitt probably made it because his remains were found near the trailer. And Gary Mathias likely made it because it looks like he switched shoes with Ted. He also had army survival skills and because it was likely he who opened and ate some of the food at the trailer using the army can opener. Ted and at least one of the other two probably survived for a considerable period because someone needed to be there eight to 13 weeks later to wrap Ted's body in the eight sheets when he finally died. The weird thing is that so few of the resources in the trailer were used. They had plenty of food and the means to heat the trailer. But Ted didn't have the sense needed to get out of his bed when the house was on fire because he thought he needed to get rest to go to work in the morning. And Jack Hewitt was the most intellectually challenged of the boys. And so he would have been even more impaired than Ted. One scenario that is compatible with these facts, and this is the nice scenario, is that all three of them made it to the trailer and Gary initially used his skills to open the food cans for them. Then, as they realized rescue wasn't coming anytime soon, Gary switched shoes with Ted because Ted had the better shoes and took off to get help, leaving Jack Hewitt to take care of Ted. Gary then died somewhere in the wilderness and Ted and Jack didn't know how to heat the trailer and didn't eat the food for some reason, perhaps because they didn't know how to open it or because they irrationally thought they'd get in trouble if they ate it. Then, after Ted died, Jack wrapped his body in the sheets and left the trailer, perhaps because of the smell, but was overcome by hypothermia or by an animal and died near the trailer. So that's the nice scenario where everybody has good intentions. Another scenario, and this is a less nice one, goes like this. Gary led or forced Ted and Jack Hewitt to the trailer. He may have forced everybody out of the car and further into the woods. He then himself ate the food, but didn't let Ted or Jack have any. Gary stayed until Ted died, then switched shoes and took off. Jack Hewitt may have died before or after Ted did, or he may have survived as, until Ted died, in which case Gary made Jack Hewitt wrap Ted up in the sheets, but then after Gary took off, Jack couldn't take care of himself, and so he also died. Or maybe there was someone else who was in the trailer, like a criminal or a pair of criminals that they had seen, and they were the ones who forced the boys to behave the way that they did. What can we say about the disappearance of Gary Mathias? The simplest explanation is that he made it to the trailer, switched shoes with Gary, and then took off to find help but died. Could have taken off early in the process, leaving Jack Hewitt with Ted at the trailer, or he could have stayed with Ted and then taken off after his death. It's entirely possible for Gary's body never to have been found. This is a big area. People go missing. Their bodies don't get found. And indeed, because of animals in the winter, his bones could be scattered all over the place. There may be no hope of finding a skeleton and putting it back together. The idea of him dying is also consistent with the fact he's never been heard from. In the past, when Gary had been off his meds, he managed some rather amazing feats, including a 540-mile trek from Portland, Oregon, to his family in Yuba City, 
During that time, he moved on foot and survived by stealing milk and eating dog food off people's porches. So that's a pretty impressive mm. accomplishment for someone to survive, go on foot and go 540 miles scavenging to get back to your family in Yuba City. But he came back to his family and he didn't do that this time. Also, if he was off his meds, he had violent tendencies, and it's hard to imagine him staying out of trouble with the police if he was at large and off medication. He should have gotten caught. The odds are low of him being off medication and then being able to establish a new identity with little or no money and then finding a new doctor and getting on meds again before he got into trouble with police. So I think that regardless of what happened to the trailer, Gary probably did not survive for that long and probably is not alive today. What about the question of whether anyone caused all this to happen or whether it was just a tragic series of accidents? There are three basic theories. The first is the most conventional explanation and also the nicest. This was just a series of unfortunate events that happened to a bunch of sweet guys, uh, most of whom were intellectually challenged. They took a wrong turn, got lost in the darkness, and abandoned their car when it got stuck. Two of them died of hypothermia while trying to find help or shelter. Three made it to the trailer. Then Gary took off to get help but quickly died. And Ted and Jack Hewitt stayed at the trailer and survived for some time but also ultimately died. However, if Joe Shones was right about seeing them with some people and a pickup, and if the Brownsville store people were right that they saw four of them on Sunday— something darker may have happened. They may have encountered criminals who led, forced, or chased them up into the mountains and got them to abandon the car and then took them to the cabin. The criminals may have held Gary hostage in the cabin while sending the other four to Brownsville in the pickup. The deaths then would have played out something like they did in the previous theory. Or, and this is the darkest theory, Gary Mathias was responsible for all of it. Although he had been doing well for two years, maybe he went off his meds and didn't tell anybody, perhaps because he didn't want to be impaired while playing in the Special Olympics. His thoughts then became disordered, and he used his force of personality to get the others up into the woods. When the car became stuck, he also lost the presence of mind to get them to push it out, so he forced them to go further into the woods. If the Brownsville store people were right, maybe he later sent the four on an errand of some kind, or, you know, maybe that never happened to the Brownsville people were wrong. Either way, the deaths then played out basically like in the previous scenarios. At some point, either before or after Ted's death, Gary abandoned the cabin, and most likely he died, although it's at least hypothetically possible that he's still out there. Is there any evidence about which of those three scenarios is likely true? If the first and nicest of the three is correct, and it was all just a series of accidents, then we won't be able to find any independent confirmation of it. But there may be some evidence favoring the other two possibilities. First, regarding the idea that all five boys met with foul play, there is the fact that when the police examined Jack Madruga's mercury, they found the underside was remarkably undamaged. The Sacramento Bee says... The few roads snaking into Plumas Natural Forest are rough and bumpy, mostly frequented by loggers' trucks these days, and rescue vehicles used during the search incurred moderate damage. Yet the Montego, a heavy car even before five grown men climbed inside, barely had any scratches on its undercarriage when found, leading investigators to believe that whoever was driving 
knew the road well enough to navigate cleanly in the dark. Madruga wouldn't let anyone else drive that car, his parents told investigators, but he also hated the cold and camping and wasn't familiar with the area. So maybe someone other than Jack Madruga, someone who did know the local roads, was driving against Madruga's will since he normally didn't let anybody else drive the car. Also, the SACB reports, About three weeks after the boys went missing, a Yuba City woman named Debbie Lynn Reese picked up the telephone, investigators said. Hello, she said. I know where the missing five men are, a man on the other end of the line said before hanging up. The man called back the next day, Reese told authorities, and said, I need help because I really hurt those guys bad. When she asked, who did you hurt? He replied, don't play dumb with me, and hung up. There was one more call the next day on March 17th. Those five guys are all dead, the man said. They're all dead, Reese asked. They're all dead, he repeated. Then he hung up, and Reese never heard from him again. So that could be a remorseful killer. Or it could be that Reese, the lady who said she got the phone calls, was hoaxing. Or it could be the person on the phone that she spoke to was hoaxing. In fact, there's evidence here that someone is hoaxing because the final call saying that all five were dead supposedly came on March 17th, just three weeks after the boys disappeared. But we know from Ted's beard and the 90 pounds that he had lost that he and at least one of the others had survived for eight to 13 weeks. So there's no way all five were dead just three weeks after they disappeared. And then what about the idea that Gary Mathias was responsible? The Sackby devotes a whole article to this theory, and they report Matthias doing some pretty disturbing stuff when he was off his meds. But he'd been on his meds for a long time, and he'd been doing fine. As we mentioned, he might have gone off of them, perhaps to compete better in the Special Olympics. But maybe he was also capable of doing dark stuff even when he was on his meds. The Sacramento Bee reports... Even under the mellowing haze of antipsychotic drugs such as cogentin, stelazine, and prolixin, Gateway Gators basketball coach Robert Pennick told investigators he still felt like Matthias, quote, could possibly flip out at any time, end quote. Following a 1978 interview of Matthias's longtime acquaintance, Janet Anzera, Yuba County Sergeant James Black wrote that Matthias had repeatedly told Anzera of a dream where he and several other people would disappear. And Zara called Matthias, quote, a very violent person hurting several men seriously, and she said that he also hates women, end quote, according to Black's interview notes. So Matthias had repeatedly told a woman that he had a dream where he and several other people disappeared, and the woman said he was violent, and his basketball coach thought he could flip out at any time. However, against this, is the fact that Gary was really looking forward to playing in the Special Olympics. You'll recall that he was the one whose mother said he'd driven her almost crazy with how he was excited to be playing in the upcoming competition. And as part of that excitement, he had told her, we got a big game Saturday, don't you let me oversleep. So he was totally planning on coming back and not disappearing everybody that night. So what can we say about this boy's disappearance from the faith perspective? Not a lot. Obviously, we should pray for their souls. It's not good for anyone to die unshriven and unannealed. The fact they all suffered from intellectual or psychological limitations means that they wouldn't be fully responsible for bad things they'd done in life. And the fact that Bill was really religious and wanted to help people get saved is an obvious good sign. 
Also, just personally, when I hear about people facing hardships, I say a quick prayer for everyone facing similar hardships, no matter where or when they live. So, you know, we can also pray for others in similar situations, even if we don't know about them personally. Yeah, that's a good point. Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the uh, disappearance of the Yuba City Five? Uh, it's such a weird case with evidence pointing in different directions that I don't have a strong bottom line. Uh, there's still a lot of mystery here. According to the SAC B, former Yuba County Sheriff Jack Beecham had this to say. They were either forced or manipulated, Beecham said. And where does Matthias come into that? Maybe he had nothing to do with it. We'll never know. But I think he did. And maybe he did, or maybe someone else forced or manipulated the boys, like the people Jack Madruga thought he saw. Or maybe it was a series of accidents caused by the boys' intellectual and psychological problems. Without further evidence, which we might one day get if Gary turns up alive or if someone with more knowledge comes forward, without further evidence, there's no way of knowing for sure. All right. So, Jimmy, what further resources do we have for folks who want to find out more about this? We'll have a link to Jesse Dixon's book, The Disappearance of the Yuba County Five, A Collection of True Crime. And so they're the first story in that true crime book. Also, Wikipedia's article on the Yuba County Five, both parts of the Sacramento Bee article dealing with this. And uh, also a link to episode 24 of Mysterious World, which was on Dyatlov Pass. So if you want to hear about the Russian Dyatlov Pass, you can listen to that. It's even weirder than the American Dyatlov Pass. Okay. So, Jimmy, let's uh, now go to some of our listener mysterious feedback. Uh, This time, the feedback is on our episode on the mysteries of the Magi. And James on Facebook writes, loved the Easter egg at the end. Merry Christmas, guys. God bless. And the Easter egg for the (laughs) Christmas episode was playing O Come All Ye Faithful at the end. Yes, very good. And uh, since it's almost Ash Wednesday, it's probably (laughs) a long time coming on that Merry Christmas. But thank you, James. Yeah. Mary on Facebook writes, thanks, Jimmy and Dom, for delivering some of the most solid programming weekly in any medium. Time for the Science Channel to pick you up. Well, thank you. Uh, If the Science Channel wants to pick us up, that would be great. In fact, if any network like a podcasting network wants to carry us, they are welcome to carry us. They just need to broadcast the show and let it do its thing. That's right. Uh, Jim on YouTube writes, what if the Bethlehem star was not really a star at all, but a tear in the fabric of space and time that separates us from the heavenly realm? A small but immensely bright tear caused by all the angels and God himself looking on the highly favored one as she awaited to give birth to the incarnate Son of God, a tear caused by the immensity of love focused on that one place in time. To the Magi, it would seem to be a bright star, a very special star, so Scripture would be proper calling it what it appeared to be, even if scientifically it was not defined as a star. Just a thought. Well, it's a very pretty poetic thought. It doesn't strike me as the most likely for two reasons. One is because it physicalizes heaven in terms of physical light and love causing a tear in the fabric of space-time, and neither one of those seems to be intuitively consistent with the nature of the spiritual world versus the physical world, that it would literally involve physical light. Also, and this is a more fundamental reason, if there was a tear in space-time that looked like a star, it wouldn't have been something the Magi could predict and interpret, uh, because 
tears in space-time that look like stars but are really miraculous things associated with the birth of a messiah, they don't happen enough to get incorporated into systems of interpreting the sky like the Magi had. Right. Aaron Wood writes on YouTube, Hi, Jimmy. Are you familiar with Father Dwight Longnecker's book, Arguing That the Magi Were From Nabatea? Yes, and Father Longnecker was kind enough to send me an electronic manuscript of his work a couple of years ago, actually. Unfortunately, I haven't had the chance to go through it yet. For people who may wonder, Nabatea is a kingdom that's to the east and south of, uh, although it also goes northern, farther north than Israel. And so it's the kingdom where Petra, for the great stone city that you see in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, that's that was the capital of Nabatea for a time. And there, there he does have a theory that he develops, and I'm looking forward to uh, reading it as I continue my studies of uh, the Magi and the Star of Bethlehem. Anthony Raj writes on YouTube, Mary of a Greatest Account of the Life of Mary says something different about the Magi. Whom to believe? Well... I can't say definitively one way or another, but as we covered last week in our episode on private revelations, they frequently incorporate ideas from the consciousness of the seer that are not meant to be taken as strictly historically accurate. That's why in showing visions of the crucifixion to people, some visionaries see Jesus crucified with three nails, others see him crucified with four nails. The purpose of this vision is not to tell us the number of nails that were historically used. It's to foster our devotion to Jesus. And so you shouldn't really look at minor details like that as in, as indicative of history. And so in Mary of Agreda's private revelations regarding the life of Mary, the same thing would tend to be true. This is really meant to help us foster our devotion to Mary, but shouldn't necessarily take all of the particulars as historically accurate. And then Daniel Doherty writes on YouTube, Jimmy, I was a bit surprised that you didn't consider the possibility that the Magi were the intellectual descendants of Daniel and that the stars functioned as a clock that told them when the 70 weeks were up. Gabriel was instrumental in both the prophecy and its fulfillment. We did in the episode consider the idea that they may have been influenced by Jewish thought, and I don't recall if I mentioned Daniel in particular, but obviously Daniel is one that people have pointed to because he was in Babylon and there was a major Jewish community there and there were also uh, Magi there. And so some people have made this connection and it's possible, but you don't need a special star to tell you when the 70 years are up. If you know about the 70 years prophecy and if you know how to interpret it, then all you need is one star, and that's the sun, to tell you when that prophecy has been fulfilled. And so they wouldn't have needed a special star as a sign to tell them. And so I don't think that's the most likely explanation, although I couldn't rule it out 100%. So uh, let's move on. Jimmy, what do we have for special headline, uh, mysterious headlines this week? Speaking of things that you see in the sky, we have a pair of headlines. One of them, the FAA is now investigating giant drones in Colorado. There have been some big drones in Colorado. The FAA does not know what it, they are. The military says they, they don't know what they are. And so they're looking for who owns these things and what are they doing. Hmm. Also, the star Betelgeuse, a little further out in the sky, may be about to explode. Or not. It may have <laughs> thousands of years life left, but it's behaving strangely enough that it seems to be getting towards the end of its life and is likely to go supernova sometime in the 
relatively near future in astronomical terms. And personally, I'm hoping there's no inhabited planets in the path of it, but I would love to see a daytime supernova that we haven't had in 500 years. Mm. So I'm hoping it happens. I'm hoping something blows up that doesn't hurt Earth or anybody else, but that is visible in the daytime sky during my lifetime. Given that Betelgeuse is 462 light years away, it may actually have already happened. And we're oh, just yeah. waiting, waiting to see yep. it. So uh, very interesting. We were talking about this at dinner the other the other day. So that's how I know how far away it is. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, let's ask listeners for their feedback on today's episode. What are your theories about America's Dyatlov past incident? What do you think happened to the uh, these poor, unfortunate uh, boys from Yuba City? You can let us know online by ways I will tell you about in a second. But before I get to that, I do want to ask Jimmy, what is our next episode going to be about? Our next episode takes us back to one of my home states, Arkansas, where we're going to talk about a UFO encounter that occurred in Arkansas at a place that I've been to called Devil's Den. Ooh, interesting. All right. So uh, if you want to give us any feedback, including your theories about what happened to the boys from Yuba City... You can do so by visiting sqpn.com slash mysterious or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page or by sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at mysteriousworldstore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in today's show, but in any of the shows that we do. Uh, they're all linked there, and when you purchase anything from that store, it helps out uh, SQPN and the StarQuest to continue our uh, our shows that we that we do for you. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.